0: Take your Bible and return, if you would, to the passage that was read by Dr. Travers just a moment ago, Psalm 116. Several years ago, um, I heard John Piper do a series of uh, biographical messages. Uh, He does one every year at their pastor's conference. And so one summer I put them all together and listened to all of them as I would go out and walk. And they were deeply uh, moving to my heart and soul. And I thought, what would it be like if we were to take the life of a great servant of God and wed it to a biblical text, do biblical exposition, which is what we believe and are committed to, and allow that person to be our illustration all the way through in terms of their life and also their writings. And then it hit me, well, what if we were to do that uh, each fall uh, here at Southeastern and in particular focus on the life of a missionary uh, whose life indeed is reflected so beautifully in a particular biblical text. And God has seemed to bless that and has uh, seemed to encourage us to keep our focus on the nations by doing that. And so I want to do the same thing again this morning and following again the pattern that used to be the case when sermon titles were not a few words or a line but rather lengthy, actually containing within them the thesis of the message My message this morning is precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. A powerful truth revealed in the all too brief life of missionary Harriet Newell. And I will confess to you, this has been a hard message for me because as you're going to hear this morning, uh, she died at the age of 19. She was younger than almost everyone in this room. And yet she committed her life to take the gospel to the nations. And she never got to the field that God intended for her or God had put in her heart. And yet her death was not a loss. And as we will see this morning, her death actually was used greatly by God for the furtherance uh, of the gospel uh, to the nations. I also want you to keep in mind as I read portions this morning from her letters, and from her journal. You're listening to the words of a 14-year-old, a 15-year-old, a 16-year-old, a 17-year-old, an 18-year-old. And you're going to, I think, be stunned that someone so young could have had such insight into the purposes and the play, plans and the, and the ways of God. So let's get started this morning. In her book, A Path Through Suffering, Elizabeth Elliot asked the question, did the earthly life of our Lord appear to be a thundering success? Would the statistics of souls won, crowds made into faithful disciples, sermons heeded, commands obeyed, be impressive? And she responds by saying, hardly. These words do not only apply to our Savior, they also apply, I believe, to one of his choicest servants, A teenage lady who, as I mentioned a moment ago, would die at the tender age of 19 on the way to the mission field that she would never see. And yet her death, like the death of our Lord, was not in vain. As was said back in America at her memorial service, surely her death will certainly turn to the advantage of missions. You see, in so many ways, Harriet Atwood Newell is a marvelous reflection of Psalm 116. It is the fourth of the Hallel Psalms, Psalm 113 through 118, that were sung at Passover, celebrating the Lord's salvation of the Hebrews out of Egyptian slavery. Our Lord would have sung this song with his disciples on the night his passion of suffering would begin. And I think you would also note that this psalm in many ways reflects magnificently the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a deeply personal psalm. It's a psalm of gratitude, a psalm of thanksgiving for the Lord's deliverance out of a trouble, a, a trouble that was so great it nearly led and did lead to death. Four times in the psalm, he speaks of calling on the Lord. You see that in verse 2, 4, 13, and 17. Three times, there are very clear allusions to death in verse 3, verse 8, and also verse 15. Twice in the psalm in verse 14 and verse 18, the author promises to fulfill his vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. And the personal pronouns of I, me, and my occur in every single verse in this psalm with the exception of two, that being verse 5 and verse 19. The psalm then is deeply personal, reflecting on what God has done, what God continues to do for us, and then what is our rightful response to such a great God? I suspect it was this biblical truth that enabled Harriet Newell to write in her journal at the age of 18, just a little more than a year before she would die on the Isle of France, these powerful words, and I quote, Oh, that I had a thousand pious relatives well calculated for the important station of missionaries. I would say to them, go and let the destitute millions of Asia and Africa know there is compassion in the hearts of Christians. Tell them of the love of Jesus and the road to bliss on high. I want to highlight for you this morning seven truths that are clearly embedded in this wonderful psalm and show you how I believe they were indeed reflected quite well in the life of Harriet Newell. Number one, such servants have a passionate love for the Lord, the psalmist begins by proclaiming his love for the Lord. I love the Lord, I love Yahweh, and why does he love the Lord? He tells us because he has heard my voice and he has heard my pleas for mercy. And in, in other words, the psalmist says, "I love a God who hears and answers prayers. He is not like the dumb idols of Psalm one fifteen and verse five that have ears but do." Not here. Harriet Newell was born on October the 10th, 1793 in Haverville, Massachusetts. Uh, She had a deep and passionate love for the Lord. In fact, as you read her letters and read her journals, she took great delight in referring to him over and over again as her Emmanuel. Uh, This is not really surprising to me. You see, she lost her earthly father in 1808. She was only 14. Uh, He would contract and die from tuberculosis and he would leave behind a wife and nine children. And yet Harriet believed with the psalmist that her heavenly father was faithful in the absence of her earthly father and that he heard her voice and that he heard her pleas for mercy. In fact, in praying for a lost friend, she would say, I have just formed a solemn resolution of devoting one part of every day to fervent, "'Cries to God for a near and dear friend. "'Who knows but my Father in heaven "'will lend a listening ear "'to the voice of my supplications "'and touch her heart with conviction "'and converting grace.'" She was also confident in God's disciplining hand in her life because she knew that it came from a God who loved her and that she could love in return. She said of His disciplining hand, I think I am willing to bear whatever God sees fit to lay upon me. Let my dear heavenly Father inflict the keenest anguish I will submit for He is infinitely excellent and can do nothing wrong. She indeed was captivated by His love. Listen to what she says. How condescending is God to permit hell-deserving sinners to commune with Him at His table. What on earth can equal the love of Jehovah? He treats those who are by nature His enemies like children. And such love moved Harriet to passionately love her Emmanuel in return. Yes, such servants have a passionate love, for the Lord. Secondly, such servants continually call on the Lord for help. Verse 2 naturally flows from verse 1 and then moves into one of the main themes of the psalm, and that is the theme of death. Because the Lord hears our voice and cries for mercy, we can be confident that we have his ears. It says there in verse 2 because he inclines his ear. To me, so as long as I live and and this length of days are given to me, she says, I, I or the psalmist says, I will call. On him, And then in verse 3, the psalmist recalls a, a specific time in his life when he especially needed the Lord's help. In fact, look at it. He describes it as a time when when the snares uh, of death, uh, the NIV uses the word cords, and the Holman Christian Standard uses the word ropes, but the, the snares, the, the cords of death encompassed, they, they surrounded me. Indeed, the pangs of Sheol, the NIV says, the torment's Of the grave laid hold on me, and I suffered distress and anguish. Eugene Peterson, in his paraphrase, the message says, Death stared me in the face, hell was hard on my heels, up against it. I didn't know which way to turn. And so, in verse 4, kind of like Jonah. Sinking in a sea that was about to drown him, the psalmist called on the name of the Lord and simply prayed, "'O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul.'" In other words, flat on his back, he could only look up. And at the end of his rope, he looked to the one who held the rope and simply cried out, "'Lord, save me, because if, if you don't save me, then I won't be saved.'" Harriet Newell stared death in the face more than once. In 1810, at the age of 17, she took a fever and nearly died. Still, she could call on and trust the Lord even in the midst of her travail, drawing strength from one of the hymns of Isaac Watts entitled, God of My Life. In fact, she had it memorized, would often repeat this particular verse. God of my life, look gently down. Behold the pains I feel, but I am silent before thy throne nor dare dispute thy will. God used this time of sickness to strengthen her faith and also to prepare her to answer his call to go to the mission field and go to the nations in a series of journal entries in 1810 between February the 10th and the 25th she would write the following, quote What great reason have I for thankfulness to God that I am still in the land of the living and have another opportunity of recording with my pen His tender mercy and loving kindness. Jesus has undertaken to be my physician. He has graciously restored me to health and brought me to resign my soul into His arms and to willingly wait the event of His providence, whether life, or death oh that this sickness might be for my eternal good he has again laid his chastening rod upon me by afflicting me with sickness and pain but i will bear the indignation of the lord because i have sinned against him i have a renewed opportunity though examining my submission to god and i do now as in his presence resolve to devote myself a living sacrifice to him and then hear these words that you see upon the screen. But I fall infinitely short of the honor due His glorious name. When, oh, when shall I arrive at the destined port of rest and with blood washed Millions who praise the Lamb of God for His redeeming love. Hasten, blessed Emmanuel, that glorious period when all thy exiled children shall arrive at their eternal home and celebrate thy praises when time and nature fail. Oh, for a tongue to sound aloud the honors and glories of the dear, matchless Savior. Yes, such servants continually call on the Lord for help. Number three. Such servants also know the character of the Lord they serve. We see this in verse 5 through verse 7. I'm convinced that those who know the Lord best are those who serve Him best. I'm convinced that a knowledge of God's character of God's ways will promote gratitude and provide a motivation to trust Him and to also serve Him. I will confess in my own life, saved at the age of 10, but not really serving the Lord very well until I was 19. Part of my problem was I just did not know how awesome He was. I, I did not understand clearly His character. I did not see clearly His ways of working. And so because I didn't know Him well, I didn't love Him well, and because I didn't love Him well, I didn't serve Him well. In verse 5, we learn three things about His character, don't we? It says there that He is gracious, that He is righteous, and that He is merciful, gracious is the Lord, and righteous; our God is merciful or full of compassion. In verse six, we learn of his ways. It says there He preserves or protects the simple, and here the, the idea is not of those who are, are ignorant or dumb, but rather those who have childlike faith, those who are simple in their trust and their their dependence upon him. indeed, when brought low. The NIV says, when I was in great need, when I was humbled, he reached out and he saved me. And so now in verse 7, we can see our proper response. Do we not return, O my soul, to your rest? For the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. The Holman Christian Standard says, for the Lord has been good to me. Even as a tender teenager. Harriet Newell captured a glimpse of this important truth that I pray today will capture my heart and your heart, that we would indeed have uh, the same heart as our Lord has for the nations because we see Him and we learn who He is and come to know Him better. In November of 1810, in a letter to a friend named Sarah Hill, she said, and I quote, I still find the promises precious and Jesus unchangeable. Though I am worthless and undeserving, yet the blessed Emmanuel is lovely and worthy of the united praises of saints and of angels. Following year, in February of 1811, in her journal, she would write, I was remarkably favored today with the presence of Emmanuel. Never before did I gain such access to the mercy seat and entertain such glorious views of the character of God and such humiliating ideas of my situation As a sinner. And then a month later, March 25th, God has not left Himself without witness in the earth. No. He is still manifesting the riches of His grace in bringing home His chosen ones. I cannot but stand amazed to see the salvation of God come and behold the works of the Lord. Yes, such servants know the character of the Lord that they serve. Number four, such servants trust in the Lord even in terrible suffering. Those who love the Lord and serve Him well are not immune from hardship and suffering. In fact, I would say to all of us this morning that we should expect it. Because after all, we are walking in the footsteps of a suffering servant Savior. The psalmist could rejoice in God's deliverance, though, in verse 8, and in the fact that he walks before the Lord in the land of the living. But do you see how he gets there? Do you see in verse 8 and verse 9 how he gets to the land of the living, how he indeed walked before the Lord in that kind of way? First, he brought his soul to the very edge of death. You see that there in verse 8. He filled his eyes with tears. Again, you, tears, you see that again in verse 8. His feet were stumbling to maintain his walk with the Lord. You you see that also in verse 8. In other words, he acknowledges following the Lord and serving the Lord was not an easy path. And yet he can testify in verse 10. He believed, even as he said, I am greatly afflicted. In other words, even in the midst of my sorrow, I trusted him. Even in the midst of my tears, I trusted him. Indeed, as Herod Newell said, he can do nothing wrong. Verse 11 kind of comes out of nowhere, but yet it makes sense. God could be trusted in his suffering, and at the same time, man could not. In fact, in comparison, he could only say kind of with exuberance and spontaneously, all men are liars. In other words, man in his depravity and sinfulness is unreliable, but but my God is not. And so when push comes to shove and you are seeking uh, God's purposes and plans for your life, some of you that are here today didn't come with a missionary agenda, but you're going to leave with one. And when you begin to pray about that and meditate upon that and God begins to do that kind of work in your life, don't be surprised if there are persons, even family members that push back and and ask, are you sure? Do you not think God has a different way or another path for you? Are you sure that you you want to take our our grandkids away from us? Are you sure that this is really what God is calling you to do? And, and I'm not calling your, your parents or your friends or your family liars, but they may be. And I know this much at the 55-year point of my life, if I have to go with, uh, with the words of God or the words of man, I, I'll go with the words of God because He can do nothing wrong, even in the midst of terrible suffering. Perhaps no event in the life of Harriet Newell and her husband Samuel illustrates this truth so well as the tragic death of their newborn baby girl who would live only five days, die and be buried at sea. You see, Harriet became pregnant soon after her marriage to Samuel, and their little daughter was evidently a a honeymoon baby conceived uh, on their wedding night or or shortly thereafter or early in their voyage on the sea. By the way, they would travel from Massachusetts uh, to India. It would take them four months to travel 18,000 miles. Interestingly, in her letters and in her journals she never even one time mentions that she's pregnant. She never complains about the seasickness, the morning sickness combined. She never complains about the very difficult circumstance in which she found herself. You never find out that she was pregnant and that she had a little baby until after the baby had been born, died, and buried at sea. In fact, in a letter that she wrote to her mother, she would say this, uh, November the 3rd, 1812. My ever dear mother, since I wrote you last, I have been called by God to rejoice and weep, for afflictions and mercies have both alternately fallen to my lot. I address you now from a bed of great weakness, perhaps for the last time. Yes, my dear mama, I feel this mud-walled cottage shake And expect ere long to become an inhabitant of the world of spirits. Eternity, I feel, is just at hand. But let me give you some account of God's dealings with me. Notice what she says there. Let me give you some account of God's dealings with me, which I shall do at intervals as strength will admit. On the cabin floor, with no other attendant but my dear husband, we could weep for joy and call ourselves the happiest of the happy, but alas... On the evening of the fifth day, the dear object of our love was snatched from us by death and on the day following committed to its watery grave. Heart-renting stroke to a parental heart, mine almost bled with deep anguish. By the way, she was never able to finish that letter because she would become so ill she would not write again leading up to her death. Later... In a letter to Harriet's mother, her husband Samuel would write, her informing her of both the death of the baby girl and his wife, uh, he would write, Sanctified afflictions are the choicest favors from heaven. They cure us of our vain, foolish expectations from the world and teach our thoughts and affections to ascend and fix on joys that never die. Yes, such servants trust In the Lord, even in the midst of terrible suffering. Number five, such servants keep their word and serve the Lord out of gratitude for their salvation. You know, one of the greatest dangers to those who have been saved for many years is that we can lose the wonder of our salvation. What Jesus did for us on the cross as he bore his body, the wrath of God in our place, can be amazingly taken for granted. It becomes a, a common thing. The psalmist, I believe, was acutely aware of this danger, and so he provides kind of a a helpful remedy to avoid the debilitating spiritual disease of complacency. First, he says, never lose sight of his, his benefits, his blessings. Look at what he says there in verse 12. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? In other words, day by day, ask yourself the question, what might I do for my Lord given what He has already done and will continue to do for me? And there's an important word that I want to emphasize one more time. What shall I render to the Lord for all His benefits? In other words, I believe the psalmist would challenge us today to reflect not only on what God has done for us in the past, but also to recall what God is doing for us in the present, and also even to anticipate what God is going to do for us in the future. No no one has helped me more in this particular area than than John Piper in his very fine book, Future Grace, the purifying power of the promises of God. Uh, Look at how he puts it uh, so clearly. The gospel events of history have an ever-present impact on the believer. Romans 5, 8 says it best with its verb tenses. God shows, present tense, His love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died, past tense for us. This means that the past gospel events mediate the present experience of the love of God. We feel loved now by God because of the effects of those past gospel events. This profound sense of being loved by God now is the way that past grace becomes the foundation for our faith in future grace. That God will fulfill every promise for our good. And so reflecting upon all the good He has done for me, verse 12, the psalmist says, I will lift up the cup of my salvation and I will call on the name of the Lord. In other words, this is so good. I I will... Come to him to ask and receive even more from him. In other words, I come asking for more, and I come asking for more, and I come asking for more. I ask for a cup of salvation that, as the Bible says, is filled and running over. Spurgeon understood this so very well. Here's how Spurgeon put it in a poetic kind of a way. The best return for one like me, so wretched and so poor, is from his gifts to draw a plea and ask him still For more. In other words, we avoid spiritual lethargy and complacency by asking God for more of what He has already given us, is giving us, and will give us a cup of salvation full and overflowing. You've ever thought about the contrast, it's really amazing. Jesus took the cup of God's wrath, and in its place he gives us a cup of salvation. No wonder now and only now will the psalmist say, I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all His people. In other words, it's out of a heart overflowing with gratitude that I will declare to all His people how great is our God. In other words, this is a blessing and a benefit that I dare not keep to myself. It is just too good not to pass on. Harriet Newell again understood this so very, very well. Converted at the age of 12, she would write, I was brought to cast my soul on the Savior of sinners and rely on Him alone for salvation. I was filled with a sweet peace and a heavenly calmness which I can never describe. As she developed a growing passion for the nations, growing out of her gratitude for God, she would say in July of 1809, What am I that I should be blessed with the gospel's joyful sound? While so many are perishing in heathen darkness for lack of knowledge of Christ. July 26, but I think I could say that it was good for me to be afflicted. God was graciously pleased to assist me in calling upon his name. And then listen to this entry, August the 7th, 1811. You'll see it on the screen. Providence now gives me an opportunity to go myself to the heathen. Shall I refuse the offer? Shall I love the glittering toys of this dying world so well that I cannot relinquish them? For God forbid it, heaven. Yes, I will go. However weak and unqualified I am, I love this, there is an all-sufficient Savior ready to support me. In God alone is my hope. I will trust His promises and consider it one of the highest privileges that could be conferred upon me to be permitted to engage in His glorious service among the wretched inhabitants of India. Yes, indeed, such servants keep their word and serve the Lord out of gratitude for their salvation. Number six, such servants believe in life or death. They are valued by the Lord. In Oswald Chambers, my utmost for his highest, the February 5th devotion reads, and I quote, It is one thing to follow God's way of service if you are regarded as a hero. But quite another thing if the road marked out for you by God requires becoming a doormat under other people's feet. God's purpose may be to teach you to say, I know how to be abased, like Paul. Are you ready to be less than a drop in the bucket? To be so totally insignificant that no one remembers you even if they think of those you served? Are you willing to give and be poured out until you are all used up and exhausted Not seeking to be ministered to, but to minister. Verse 15 comes out of nowhere, doesn't it? In a psalm of rejoicing in God's deliverance from death, it just doesn't seem to fit, and yet it does. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His saints. Now, please don't miss this, because I'm absolutely convinced this was true in the life of Harriet Newell, but even more so, it was true in the life of the Lord Jesus You see, the same God who delivers us from death is the same God who delivers us through death. And the death of even one of God's saints, the Bible says, is a precious thing to Him. The New Living Translation says, the Lord cares deeply when His loved ones die. It's hard for me to imagine this morning that the death of any saint was more precious to King Jesus than the death of Harriet Newell As we've already learned, she, as a teenager, newly married, left her widowed mother and eight brothers and sisters, knowing, by the way, and making clear in her writings that she never expected to see them again, and she would not. As we've learned, she was pregnant for most or all the four months' journey to India where she and Samuel be denied permanent residence. You see, they went there with the Judsons uh, to work with the Carries, but the East India Company, which was so evil, forbid them, forbade them from coming in and so denied. At first, they thought they were going to have to return to America, and then uh, the Judsons eventually would find their way to Burma, and uh, the uh, Newells thought that perhaps the Isle of France would be where God would allow them to minister, So on the way, with only her husband at her side, she delivered a baby girl. They named her Harriet, and they watched her die five days later. And then one month after the death of that baby girl, a combination of both tuberculosis and pneumonia would afflict Harriet, and she would die. And yet, just a few weeks before she would die, she would write this to Ann Judson, the wife of Adoniram Judson, How dark and mysterious are the ways of providence! But it is well, everything that God does must be right, for he is a being of infinite wisdom as well as power. I think I have enjoyed the light of Emmanuel's countenance and have known joys too great to be expressed. And then in describing Harriet's death to her mother, Samuel would write, She was by no means alarmed at the idea of death, nor was she melancholy. She was calm, patient, and resigned. During the last week of our board, she read through the whole book of Job, and as she afterward told me, she found sweet relief from every fear in submitting to a sovereign God, and could refrain from shedding tears. of Could not refrain from shedding tears of joy that God should give her such comfortable views of death and eternity. The enjoyment of God was what she expected and longed to find in heaven. Her mind seemed to repose with comfort and to delight. "...on the glorious perfection of Jehovah, her covenant God." She spoke repeatedly of the pleasure she took in dwelling on the character of God. And when I asked her if she was not willing to live longer, she said, "...yes, if I could live better than I have ever done. But I have had so much experience of the wickedness of my heart that if I should recover..." I should expect the remainder of my life to be much like the past and I long to get rid of this wicked heart and go where I shall sin no more. Can you imagine this? This girl, 15, 16, who can write stuff like this and she says, oh, if I were to live longer, I don't know if I could handle it because I have such an evil, wicked, depraved heart it reminds me again of how seductive sin is and how many of us in this room perhaps myself included failed to see just how wicked and evil we are apart from god's amazing loving redeeming grace on the sabbath of the 29th of november the day before she died a doctor friend came from sarampore and he looked at harriet and he took me aside and told me that he thought she could not live through the next day when I told Harriet what the doctor said she raised both her hands clasped them with eagerness and with an expressive smile on her countenance exclaimed O oh, blessed news Yes precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints finally number 7 such servants will offer a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving to the Lord for all to hear Our psalm comes to a conclusion with the psalmist giving tangible expression of his love for the Lord that he expressed back in verse 1. In verse 16, he gladly identifies himself, what, as the Lord's servant out of gratitude again for his deliverance from chains and afflictions, the afflictions perhaps referred to back in verse 10. In in, in verse 17, he will offer sacrifice and praise of thanksgiving as he again for the fourth time calls on the name of the Lord. In verse 18, for a second time, he pledges to... Publicly fulfill his vows to the Lord. In other words, what I said I will do, I will do. And in verse nineteen, he specifies the, the place of his declaration and and offers uh, an offering as the temple courts in Jerusalem, concluding with an outburst of worship, praise the Lord. Derek Kidner, the wonderful Old Testament scholar, uh, says, "...the flames of the psalmist's love for his God is not withdrawn to burn alone. Placed in the midst of God's people, it will kindle others and blaze all the longer and better for it." Commenting to a friend on Harriet's death, Samuel Newell said, "...tell her mother that her dear Harriet never repented of any sacrifice she had made for Christ." and that on her dying bed she was comforted by the thought of having had it in her heart to do something for the heathen, though God had seen fit to take her away before we entered on our work. At her memorial service preached back in America, I believe the preacher was right. You'll see the quote above. Henceforth, everyone who remembers Harriet Newell will remember the foreign mission from America. And everyone who reads the history of this mission will be sure to read the faithful record of her exemplary life and triumphant death. Her life, measured by months and years, was short. But far otherwise, when measured by what she achieved. So let me conclude. Herod Newell died in the arms of her missionary husband, Samuel, on November the 30th, 1812. She was only 19. She had been married less than a year. He would carry her to her grave and he would bury her alone. And yet on her deathbed, she pled with her husband to relay to her family these very famous words, tell them, assure them, that I approve on my dying bed the course I have taken. I have never repented, leaving all for Christ. How in the world could a 19-year-old girl speak in such a fashion? Maybe we learned something from a journal entry when she was 18, March the 26th. The sacrifices which I have made are great indeed, but the light of Emmanuel's countenance can enliven every dreary scene and make the path of duty pleasant. Should I at some future period be destitute of one of my sympathizing friends in a foreign, sickly clime, I shall have nothing to fear. When earthly friends forsake me, the Lord will take me up. No anticipated trials ought to make me anxious, for I know that I can do and suffer all things through Christ who strengthens me. In his hands, I have the direction of every event, knowing that he who is infinitely wise and good can do me no wrong. She was buried on the Isle of France, and a marble monument was erected over her grave with the following inscription, Early devoted to Christ her heart burned for the heathen. For them she left her kindred and her native land and welcomed danger and sufferings. Of excellent understanding, rich in accomplishments and virtues, she was the delight of her friends, a crown to her husband, and an ornament to the missionary cause. Her short life was bright, her death full of glory, her name lives and in all Christian lands is pleading with irresistible eloquence eloquence for the heathen this humble monument to her memory is erected by the american board of commissioners for foreign missions i recently completed a biography on harriet newell by jennifer adams she notes that back in america over the next several decades there was an explosion of baby girls receiving the name harriet newell in honor of this brave and godly missionary At her memorial service, she was rightly called the first martyr to the missionary cause from the American world. And the preacher drove home this point. The death of Harriet, instead of overcasting our prospects, will certainly turn them to the advantage of missions. And he was right. By 1840, her grave had been visited by many Americans. Her memoirs, which, by the way, she was burning as she was about to leave for the mission field. Can you believe this? These things I've drawn from, she was burning them. Her mother said, what are you doing? She said, well, I'm, I'm burning my, my journals because only a prideful, evil little girl would have done this. And her mother said, well, would you stop and let me have them just by way of remembering the daughter that I will never see again? And so she stopped, and as a result of that, we have those journals today. They were published for the next 25 consecutive years with a new edition every year. And what was the result of her journals? Many conversions, many people answering the call to go to the nations. You might ask, what about her husband Samuel? Uh, He would go on to serve for seven years in a successful mission in, in Ceylon. You say, why did he only work seven years? Because on May the 30th, 1821, he would die before reaching his 30th birthday from cholera. And once more, the truth, I believe, is claimed. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you once more for this magnificent psalm of thanksgiving and gratitude for a God who delivers out of death and a God who delivers through death. And Lord, I would pray for my students today, these students who are yours, a prayer that I heard Jim Elliot pray, and that is this, Lord, I would not ask necessarily for them a long life, but I would ask that you would give them a fruitful life. A fruitful life like you, Lord Jesus. A fruitful life like Harriet Newell. She only lived 19 years, and yet her calls, uh, the cause of the, of the gospel and the call to the nations was greatly flamed because of her devotion and her commitment to her Emmanuel. Lord, she was willing to give all for King Jesus. Are we willing to do the same? This I ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary.